thecreativecoast.org. I'm Pi. And I'm Mark. And today we're going to talk with Victoria Adams, the author of Redefining Job and the Conundrum of Suffering. Mark and I really came to this book from different perspectives. He's a Bible nerd, and I had no idea who Job was. I didn't know anything about the story of Job before I picked up this book. I felt like Victoria's approach to Job and his story was really accessible and fascinating. This book covers a wide range of scholarly sources from many cultures and ends with how we would address suffering in our current time. Here's Job with his so-called friends who are holding forth with such eloquent nonsense, and Victoria's book is an excellent reply to blame the victim ideology, in my opinion. Let's go ahead and talk to Victoria and hear what she has to say about Job, as well as her fiction and some of her other writing. Victoria, thank you so much for letting us talk to you. Can you kind of start us off by telling us a little bit about the initial spark or or the inspiration for this project? What led you to looking at the book of Job this way? Well, I was raised in an evangelical home. And uh, we were, you know, in church three times a week. And there were certain rules and regulations that one was supposed to observe. And I guess I felt uh, growing up that uh, the world didn't look at all like what I was being told it should look like. And I think I got to be a bit like Joe. I I saw things happening in my life that I felt were not good and were not within the structure of what I was told life should be like. And I needed answers because I don't think I ever, um, strangely enough, I don't think I ever decided that I needed to leave a faith. I, I don't think I needed to not believe, but I think that that faith really needed to be restructured to something that fit for me, that made sense within the universe that I saw. And so I, you know, through the years, I did a lot of teaching and, and um, I have shared from pulpits and I have taught Sunday school classes from um, very small children uh, who are always interesting uh, to adults. and in other subjects as well. And so I learned to, to communicate, I think, and, and to share things that I wanted, that I've discovered. And as I grew older, some of the impacts of my childhood uh, probably led me down paths that I could have had avoided. So I learned a lot. And I came to a point where I could reconcile what I believed with what I found the world to be. And I met a man who I absolutely adore and whom I lost five years ago, who um, was very intelligent. He was very well-educated and had a PhD in philosophy. And we would talk for hours and hours and hours. And he began to really push me to write and say, you need to put these thoughts down. Uh, Now, you can't just sprawl them in a book and hope that people agree with you. You need to put the effort in to make it, you know, something that, People understand how you got there. And so I started the research and I started to put things together. And, and of course, one of the problems that I had on the final revision of the manuscript was some of my sources were from years ago. And trying to locate those things again was, was quite the task. But 
I had editors that worked on me hard and made me fill that research in. And I think this is just a culmination of all of that experience and that research. And, you know, would I write the same book next year? I, I can't tell you. I, because I think that it is uh, it's something that is always growing. It's something that always uh, helps you discover new things. But I needed to get Job off the ash heap. I needed to get him standing and facing the universe as a whole human. And that's what I chose to do. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book, Victoria, I have to tell you that. And you did do that background research that you referred to a moment ago. It's all through your book. And uh, the scholarship and the research is very apparent in it. And that's one of the things that makes your book a joy to read. There's so many things to look at in it to, to ask questions about because you're very comprehensive in the in the subject. Because I think you alluded to also a moment ago that usually in, in churches, uh, they often just take a very uh, cursory look at Job and a very surface look at Job and uh, don't look at the background and the whys and wherefores. There are so many questions that come up about the subject that you bring up in your book. So here are some of them that maybe uh, just to get the conversation going, is there any correlation in your mind with Job and the Apostle Paul's idea that grace is made perfect in weakness, uh, sort of a thought he expressed in 2 Corinthians twelve ten. I think that as creative beings, we, we sometimes have to arrive at the conclusion that we are not masters of the universe, but that the questions of the universe are open to exploration. So I don't know if we find perfection in, in weakness, but I think that we find a realistic attitude when we accept who and what we are and still seek to do better. Perhaps that's the stretch for perfection. I think that Job, driven to the edge of, of giving up, said, but, but wait, I'm an intelligent human being. I can sit here and I can reason through this. And I know, I know that there has to be reasons that these things happen. And maybe it's not just because of me, but maybe there is something I did, and I just need to figure that part out. To withstand the onslaught of his so-called companions and their constant harassment took a bit of stepping aside and pulling himself in to where he could think through his own problem without the white noise going on. And that was something I could genuinely appreciate about Joe, because it's something that's happened to me quite frequently. <laughs> You do cover a number of things that not just the Judeo-Christian view of things, but also so many other things, Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, Islam, and you get into some of the pre-literate cultures. Uh, and that was an interesting way to look at it because the Hebrew faith, because of the Hebrew canon and the other Hebrew writings, they're very, very, you know, at least after the Babylonian period, very literate. And you really got me to thinking about the preliterate cultures. And the question that came into my mind in looking at that part was, in what ways do you see preliterate cultures working with, kind of working together with the pre-Renaissance scholarship to help make modern sense of Job? You also, and now while I'm talking about that, when I talk about pre-Renaissance, you talk about a lot of research that's going on from 100 years BCE up through, through the 18th century Enlightenment. And one of the things that many of us are taught in school is that those were the dark ages, that it wasn't until the Renaissance that we really got enlightened. And so many scholars you cite are in the pre-Renaissance era. 
that clearly were very learned. But then you also relate that to the pre-literate cultures. You tied some ribbons in, in that. And what were some of the salient points that were in your mind as you were doing that? I think that I, I think there's two approaches to that. First of all, um, to me, suffering is a universal issue. Uh, I don't I don't care where you're from, what you believe, or why you believe it, or how you grew up. Things that don't go right are things that we as humans need to deal with. And I wanted to see how all of these different cultures dealt with that question. How do we decide? Uh, whether or not we did something wrong, whether or not it's that guy that did something wrong that caused all of these problems. Um, you know, how do, how do human cultures deal with suffering? And do we always kick the injured to the curb? You know, do, do we always say, well, you must have done something wrong. I don't have anything to do with you, so go away. I, I wanted to build the scope of that approach and say, what brought the author of Job to the point where he sat down, she sat down, whomever sat down and wrote this book and said, you know what, this whole thing about crime and punishment really doesn't work anymore. We're learning a whole bunch of stuff about how the cosmos works and how the universe is happening. And, and, and we have all these Greek scholars that are coming up with these really interesting things. And we have this culture of the Persians here that that treat humans so differently than so many other empires did. This is a whole new scenario. How do I put my God in that spot and make it work? And I think that that was at least part of what brought them there. So anytime you're looking at readjusting your culture, you tend to bring all the baggage that's happened since we first started chopping on a stone, and it becomes part of the change. And that's why I wanted to see, how did we look at suffering when we didn't have all the trappings of churches and all the trappings of mosques and, you know, whatever else that we were doing? When the ritual wasn't there, what ritual did we create to deal with it? And that's why I went back that far. The other part is that I have a poem that I wrote many years ago. And it's been kind of my guiding light, I think. Uh, and it's on my website. Is it something that we've left behind or something that we've yet to find that keeps each one forever hoping to reach that thing for which we're groping? I sincerely believe that we sometimes forget the value of what we left behind and that if we look at it with different eyes, we might find gems that are useful for today. That's beautiful. Also, what you just mentioned is tying it all to today's knowledge and everything. You really tied that together at the end of the book with all these preliterate cultures and everything, with the learning that science has picked up lately uh, in our lifetimes even, uh, has been tremendous. And I've never thought about that informing one's thought about Job and suffering, but it was so very relevant and it was worth it. You also talked about the academic doctrine versus a lived faith, because the preliterate cultures didn't have a doctrine per se, that their religion was the lived religion, as I recall you're pointing out. So in the New Testament writings, the epistle of James is sort of like, it's not worth it unless you're living it. If a person's hungry, why you say, I have faith and you have works. When I was reading that about the preliterate cultures, you didn't mention James, but I don't know why that popped out at me. Is there a link there? 
I think that anytime that you're talking about dealing with suffering in the world, whether it's something that you want to be proactive about or whether you're trying to say that someone is suffering because they didn't do something, so I don't have to worry about it, whatever your point is, I think that oftentimes the whole question of faith versus works and all of that tends to pop into our heads. Well, you know, we're saved by grace, so it means we don't have to do anything. Well, I strongly disagree. <laughs> I think that that faith faith is a verb. It's something that is seen. It, it's something that is lived. It's something that happens in our attitude. And if we can watch our atheistic friends do good in the world simply for the good of good, then how are we off the hook knowing how much more there is to life? I, I think that's one of my strongest points is that we need to drop that blaming game. We need to stop assigning blame and we need to start proactively finding ways to mitigate or eliminate some forms of suffering. Uh, we have the capability to feed everyone on the face of this earth, and yet we refuse to do so. We have the capability to save people from hunger and from disease, and, and there are people who are working very hard to do that, Gates Foundation being one, who are throwing billions at discovering ways to make life easier and more trouble-free, and, and yet we choose not to help. And I, I look back at the prophets of the Old Testament in time after time after time, when they would admonish Israel for her sins, those sins were not related to breaking a rule. Those sins were related to not caring, to not taking care of those people who needed it, to being really disgusting individuals. I feel that if the message of Job is part of that is that, yes, he was a man that was a person who did try to take care of people, and yet things happened. And so it's not a game of, okay, I have a certain number of chips, and that means that when the plane blows up, I'm going to land in my seat, and I'm going to be fine. But the guy next to me is going to get blown away, and I don't know why, but I don't care because I'm okay. We have to let that go. We're neither in a bubble protected by some little hedge that keeps us safe because we said some words at an altar at some point or somebody put us underwater, nor is the whole universe out to get us, right? We have to be cognizant participants in the world as it is. And doing that requires understanding that world and being receptive to where science and mathematics and all of those things, medicine, is for us today. It, it means being realistic about what we're learning and how we know the world works. My recollection is that you covered that very eloquently in that book, and it was a joy to read that part. Those parts, actually, different parts where that was, that was covered about the, not just the environment and the people who are at risk. You know, For example, you mentioned the environment. Yes, we need to stop doing bad things to the environment, but at the same time, we also need to do it in a way that doesn't put people, marginalized people, economically at risk or some other way at risk, for example, from additional toxic things in their physical environment. Those are concerns that sometimes get brushed under the rug in purist discussions. And another thing that came out to me in the book is the comprehensive tying everything together. You know, you read a number of books that are very well researched, 
that are scholarly, but they are very, very narrow. Their subject scope is caveated every which way to basically say, I don't have the solution to the problem. Don't, don't come to me. Don't blame me. And it's almost like that's what it says, you know, from the title through the abstract to the conclusion. And that seems to be common. Whereas one thing that to me, I'm just my own observation, your book is different in the respect that it's scholarly and comprehensive, but it's also interrelating all these things that you don't necessarily think would be relevant to a discussion of suffering, but they are very relevant. The environmental things, the economic things, the socio-political things that affect people's lives in the tangible way. That is part of it. If I could do some follow-ons to your answers, if I may, sure. while we're talking about this, you discussed quite a bit, and I hadn't seen, you discussed a lot about who the author really is and the world that author lived in. And it's sort of almost, I wouldn't say, I guess it is axiomatic that to understand Bible content, you need to understand the cultural background that those writers were working in, were writing in, and the research on the background of what was the world this author was living in, the world I'd never thought about it before, about the time that you nailed down generally when the book of Job was written, even though there are other scholars you cite who have different ideas of different places, different times, that this was at a time when the, the Greeks were discovering a lot of their mathematical and astronomical and um, medicinal advances. And you had the cultural cosmopolitan influences of the Persians and the Babylonians and, and the Egyptians that the author of Job may have been exposed to. I know I, for one, had never thought about all of those different things coming together at one time to put in a concept that's a little different from the surface concept that most people who think about Job think about. There's a question in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm trying to... I'm trying well, to I think uh, that one of the things that caught me is that I've always been a person that is not really comfortable with 9 out of 10 dentists believe you should use this toothpaste. So I... You know, when I heard that the majority of scholars today believe, da 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 and I go, well, that's nice. I don't know who these scholars are. I don't know what their agenda is, and I don't know where they got their information. And so I did what I do, which is take things apart and see if I could put them back together again. And that's kind of where I found, I mean, when I was reading some of the books that went into the research for this book, I was kind of sideswiped by some attitudes and some thoughts that didn't really fit within the job I had grown up with. And I had to rethink that. I mean, one of the books that, that is quoted in there is God on Trial. And this gentleman, who is a jurist from Canada, wrote a book that was based on the assumption that it was written uh, during Babylonian times and that it was structured around the festival year of the Jews. Well, since I was still back there with Moses, uh, it, it took me a while to realign my thought process. And that's when I had to go back and take apart more things. And I think that I've always been a person that believed that if you really wanted to understand not just the cultural vernacular, which might not be relevant to us today, but if you wanted to understand the humanity of whatever the question is, then you needed to put them where they were. You needed to understand what their influences were, what their pressures, what pressures were on them, things that had to do with whether or not Job is a real person, 
or whether or not it's a legend that was carried forward. And I think that in the book, I arrive at the conclusion that whether or not he was, it's not really material to the story, although he might have been, or he might have been a combination of things. What is relevant is that somebody took a legend and said, I can use this to show people what I'm thinking. And thus the author sat down and said, okay, you know what? The crime and punishment thing is not going to work. It helps sometimes, but not all the time. And we really need to look for a different response to this. When bad things happen, it's not because Thor or God or somebody up there is up there throwing lightning rods at us. There's something else going on here and we need to know more about it. And I think that that's part of what I wanted to discover. It was an interesting journey because, of course, some of the fellows that wrote in, 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 in the Middle Ages, as you spoke, had a different point of view, especially when it came to women. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, you know, some of the philosophers are rather arrogant. You know, when you look at uh, some of them, it was like, you know, well, scripture's written on two levels. There's the, you know, for the masses things where they can you know, get their lollipops and go home. And then there's the real stuff there that we need to look at. And I'm going, yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe, but I, I think that most folks, if they take the time, can figure this part out. And I, that's kind of what I wanted to do. So, you know, hopefully my little commentaries here and there don't get too snarky, but <laughs> it's been through a number of edits. So I think it's been smoothed over here and there. <laughs> But I, I think that that's what I really, really needed to do. I needed to find the author where he was writing. And being an author, I, I, I understand that that really contributes. You know, why did I pick Joe? Because my life was hell when I was growing up. <laughs> and I wanted to know why. I, I wanted to know why I was being picked on. I didn't want to know I was special for some future thing. I didn't want to know that you know, when all life was done, I'd find out what all the secrets were. I, I wasn't interested in those kinds of answers. So that's, you know, what goes through an author's mind when they're writing something. And I wanted to climb inside of this once and say, what are you trying to say? This is sort of a, a quick question that again came up. This is something that it was not on my list of questions to you, Victoria. But um, since Mark got to throw in, you know, a bonus, I want to see if this is okay. I thought we would have a conversation. But I have been trying to locate this quote. But I think there was something earlier in the book where he mentioned something about today we think of suffering or we experience suffering. Basically, it was you were talking about suffering today. Maybe our global connectedness makes us what's more global i mean if you if you look back at the vietnam war i mean we started having war on our tv sets every afternoon and every evening and when you look at the iraq war when we had i mean it was right there in front of our faces i we had some incredible journalism during world war one and world war two and we had photographs but we didn't have on the screen in your face people dying and getting blown up and and it wasn't a movie anymore and i think that that can cause a lot of stress when people are more aware of what's going on on the other side of the world or in their neighborhood. I think one of the things that shocked the nation more than anything and probably cost the Republicans the following, or at least one of the things that contributed to the Republicans losing the next election was when Katrina hit uh, New Orleans. We had no idea that there was a third world country on our coast. We, we really, we, we just weren't paying attention to the fact that there were people living in our country 
and that kind of poverty that they couldn't even leave town or get to safety when the dikes broke. I think that because we have so much in our face, especially recently when we are constantly bombarded with this problem and that thing, and we just can't keep up with it anymore, it drains so much out of us that if we're going to put something back in, then we need to find a way to deal with some small little corner. It doesn't have to be the whole world. We do not have to save the world tomorrow. But maybe we can smile at somebody that looks sad at the grocery store or wave since we have masks on now. (laughs) There's, you know, buy a cup of coffee for the person behind you in line. Um, I call it uh, Nabitab. I always run that during the holidays. I do a little Nabitab hashtag and and say, you know, pick up somebody's tabs and that person behind you in line, you know, just some little, you know what? There's somebody in the world that knows you're here. Yeah. You know, you can do so many really small and inconsequential things that can impact the people around you. And if you want to know what faith is as a verb, that's how you do it. And when you see reactions and when you do that on a more regular basis, then you begin to see places where you can be an impact. If you can't go out and hop in your car and drive through the homeless places and hand out coffee and yeah. sandwiches and blankets, then maybe you can find an organization who does that right. and support them with you know, doing some mail for them or making phone calls or giving them money or whatever the case may be. But sitting in your house and going, oh, well, it's me, the world is falling apart. Well, yeah, it is. And unless somebody decides proactively to do it differently, it will. So I think that if anything comes out of Job, it's like, you know what? Yeah, we're on a half sheep, but we don't have to stay there. One of the reasons why I was excited to talk to you on our podcast, Victoria, was because I feel like your book is doing a couple of different things, but I think some of those things appeal to Mark especially, and some of them appeal to me especially. But there are different things. Like my dad, he's a Bible nerd. So uh, I knew that he was going to, you know, get down deep into tying in some different verses from the Bible. And Bible has never been my thing, as we were talking about when we started chatting. I'm just not familiar with it. But when I got into your book, like one of the things that I, I liked immediately about it was, you know, Mark was talking about, okay, you go into the history, you know, you're looking at, you know, who is who is this author? Or is it just one author? You know, how do these different cultures contribute to this, the story of Job? But then for me, I was intrigued by the way that you, well, how you basically brought in some more contemporary works of literature. And I guess when I say contemporary, I mean, over the past uh, 200 years versus, you know, (laughs) BC, (laughs) including like not just the written literature or written text. I mean, you're talking also about films. You talk about Pleasantville. You also talk about MASH, the show MASH. But I was wondering if you could say a few words about just kind of how the story of Job or suffering appears in literature. And let me, let me back up with that because I think I don't want to just say suffering, but in your in your chapter on different authors and kind of how they treat suffering, you were talking about how particular characters in these works, how they deal with with suffering and then tie it into into Job. So anything that you want to you want to grab there? Well, I think that as an author, <laughs> I, I, I like to, you know, I mean, that old English lit 
training kind of creeps in and you know you're trying to explain you know, like the thing about whether why there's blue curtains in the window and yeah. <laughs> crazy things that you get put through but you know as an author I, I like to I do like to see what comes out of a person's mind when they're sitting down to tell a story right and, you know as I say very often in Job that you know once upon a time is forever the quote that I was allowed to quote um, I was told I could use for any advertising and uh, that I could do so as long as I didn't say that the author uh, was, you know, uh, making a, an endorsement of my work. <laughs> but I, 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 that, that whole quote really, really struck me and that, you know, we don't need lots of things to do and not do and rules and regulations and dogma. What we really, really need is a really good story because we're going to remember that. Yeah. And that's why... I think that I came into literature because I think that some of the literature like Candide and, um, you know, uh, the brothers, uh, and I'm going to massacre that name. Uh, you know, these pieces of literature said something about what that author was trying to figure out about what was going on in the world around them. In the case of Candide, we have this total destruction of Portugal with, with earthquakes and fires and whatever else going on. And, um, you know, with the Russian author, we had the Bulgarian War, where all these atrocities were happening, and children were being murdered at a whim, and, and pregnant women were being sliced open, and, you know, and, and I mean, really horrible things going on in the world. And these authors were going, but where does this God thing come from? With all of this horror that I'm seeing, is it worth it? What, what, what can I possibly learn about God that's going to make this okay? Right. And... That to me was Job's cry. Yeah. You know, maybe several centuries later, a millennial or two later, but it was the same cry. How can I look at all of this misery and find God here? Where, where is he? And that's why I think those things came to me. And, and one of the reasons why I do so love C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, that is an amazing book that asks those questions through the vehicle of a Greek myth where you know we make decisions in life that impact others and sometimes we don't know what that impact's going to be and yet we we cry out in 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 anguish because we did it based on what we knew and you know so we go back and we ask the same questions you know what are the rules here how do i know i'm not going to hurt somebody if i make this choice or that choice or or you know how do i work myself through this and i think that more than anything our literature draws that out in us and it, and it says things about what's important to us and and what risk we're willing to take and whether or not we care if somebody gets hurt along the way yeah. i mean there's some people who just don't have that capacity they just blank don't understand it you did address sociopaths in your book too yes 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 <laughs> And, and that, that is the balance, you know, because as we learn more about how our minds work, you know, sometimes you're thinking it's an excuse that, well, my chemistry just makes me do these bad things. Yeah. But there's a very fine balance between the propensity to do something and the agency to choose not to. I liked that discussion, by the way, in your book <laughs> on that. Well, one of my editors has a degree in psychology, and she was a, a really big help uh, in smoothing some of those things uh, out and giving me some references to look at, because I do think it's critical when we're addressing anything that, that talks about sin or, or missing the mark or whatever you want to look at from that point is when we make bad decisions, what, what's, what's, you know, what drives us? And I, I think that there is a point where when we know 
what the problem is. And we choose not to do something that will help us not cause harm. Then we have made a wrong decision and somebody needs to help us not have that choice. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a person for capital punishment and I don't like our current prison system. I don't think it accomplishes diddly squat. But I do believe that there's times when society has to take into their hands uh, the possibility that someone is not going to make right choices no matter what. That said, I think that there is a level of anguish of not knowing that if I had not done this, would such and such have happened? And that, I think, uh, is part of the suffering. It's part of, you know, the suffering, you know, the injury may have been caused to someone else, but we share in that burden, as has been proved scientifically. (laughs) Yeah, kind of on that same angle of kind of looking at literature and artwork and basically what it what we can do with it, what it does for us. You're a a fiction writer. I mean, you already told us about about poetry that you've written before. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your about your fiction and your fiction project? Well, up to now, I've only done some few flash fiction, small pieces that, um, you know, people encourage me into this contest or that 30 days with 30 characters kind of thing. And I kind of enjoyed it because, you know, like I said, I've read since I was four. And so I have tons of little stories running around in my head. And, and I love to, you know, I have, you know, due to some circumstances in my life, I, I have a, an active imagination. So I, I find it a place to go, um, an interesting place to visit. And I think after I completed Job, and I do have another book out. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Uh, and I'll, I'll touch on that briefly as well. But my current project is called The Seeker. And, you know, maybe it is a little bit autobiographical, but it, it's, it's situated in a world very much like the Himalayans um, around, say, four or 500 BCE. And I wanted to put her in a place where my main character, Dolma, is not willing to just swallow current dogma and doctrine whole, where things have happened in her life, where she's just not prepared to say, yeah, well, you know, little magic herbs and things will be fine. She's really questioning and um, she's very rational. And she she has a journey to take. She has a way to go to find some interesting middle ground where perhaps she has a unique way of having a faith, a unique way of helping people, and uh, a strength that's not seen by others very quick. Only certain people see what she is capable of doing. I'm about halfway, maybe third of the way through at this point. <laughs> We'll see how quickly it goes. It's like I was sharing with, with, with Ginger. It's like I sometimes I feel like I'm reading the book rather than writing it, which is uh, kind of a unique experience for me. Yeah, it sounds like a blessing to me. I wish I could read my, my fiction. Yeah, so I hurry up and get someplace. And I go, no, no, no. We also, and I, well, you can fill in the blanks later. Just let's get, let's get the storyline in here. And I have a friend of mine who's helping me with a few things um, so that I don't have to spend a lot of time researching some more um, esoteric kind of stuff, things that I'm familiar with. I know herbs. I I don't have a problem with herbs. I'm more naturally oriented, I think, than than some folks are. I haven't had a great 
lot of luck with medical personnel. So I tend to try to try alternative methods as far as yeah. I can, as soon as I can. And then if it all work, then we'll go talk to the doctor, you know. But I, so I have a more than a slight introduction. Um, my family is also my maternal grandmother was uh, Roma. So I, I have more than a slight introduction into that world. So these things can mix together and, and maybe arrive at something that people can look at and say, you know, I don't have to be um, a Bible thumper to have faith. Uh, I don't have to have a particular brand of doctrine to understand that there's more to the universe than I know. And I think that's part of what gets shared in the things that I write. There's, there's one of two things I'm going to be looking at. One is exercising our sense of wonder and discovering the universe rather than attempting to label and box it. And the other side is the side of what can I do to help? What, what, what can I do to make the world a better place? Oh, that's beautiful. You know, I, because I had read some of the, the current project, like the, the work in progress, because I read that before I read Redefining Job, immediately, like as I was reading the Job book, as I've been calling it, <laughs> I started seeing connections with the fiction, like immediately. So your fiction came first for me and I could see like, oh yeah, looking at stories and storytelling and myths and how these stories impact the world that you're physically a part of day to day. I saw that right away. Well, that's good I'm not off script. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good thing I'm not off script. <laughs> oh, so the other book that I have written um, is oh, yes. Who I Am Yesterday, and that has gone through um, various morphings. Uh, it has been published by a small press, but it is now currently self-published. Uh, it, is, it was written about the first year I spent with my husband after we learned that he had vascular dementia. It's, it's a combination memoir and how-to, uh, which I guess is unusual in the genre. It was my conversations at night about, okay, what went well and what really didn't go very well at all. And uh, I think that it, it was, for me, uh, an effort to give people hope, to give people a sense of having permission to have a sense of humor. Uh, as a, you know, Again, I brought up MASH. Sometimes humor is a survival technique. Uh, it's a gift that we've been given as uh, humans, and I think we should use it wisely. I think that learning how the mind worked and learning how to deal with the changes that were going on with my husband. I mean, he, he was a very brilliant man. He had over 220 published peer-reviewed articles in multiple subjects. Uh, and, and to watch him deteriorate before my very eyes was extremely hard. And I had to know why. I mean, it was something he and I always did. We had to know why. We, we both loved to take things apart and see how they worked. So I did a lot of reading and I did a lot of how do I understand this? And some of that went into that book. At some point, uh, at some day, I will do a second book that takes the rest of the story to all the things that, that we discovered and, and what choices I had to go through. There's a lot of blogs on my website um, that are about that journey. Uh, I'm in the process of moving, which is um, almost worse than moving my house, which, as you can see behind me, is... <laughs> Lots of books. <laughs> yeah. Lots of boxes of papers. My husband was a researcher, so there's just piles and piles of stuff from everywhere. And I, I'm going through them slowly but surely. But it's, 
almost as hard as doing that. But I, I'm coming off a WordPress site and going to uh, independently uh, hosted site at GoDaddy and, uh, so that I can sell my book. And uh, I don't have to have advertising and all that stuff interrupting life. And slowly but surely, I'm moving things over. And, you know, the site is now active. Um, okay. We can put that in our show notes also, a link to that. Yeah, absolutely. Victoriasreadingalcove.com. Victoria's Reading Alcove. You look like you're about to ask a question, Ginger. Yeah, I was, but I lost it. Oops. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, I remember what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. I, you know, I try to think, okay, like when I'm listening to people talk, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, I want to grab that. I'm like, okay, well, I need to follow up on this when we before. move on. And then like, I, I lose it. yeah. Um, so you, you have written nonfiction. I mean, this is uh, redefining Job is it's a nonfiction, the nonfiction book. You're working on fiction. You've written fiction, uh, but your first book was, you know, you said it's a memoir. So it's a nonfiction. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, you wouldn't. I, I'm trying to remember what you dis, what you described it as in addition to memoir. Oh, it's a memoir and a how-to. And, <laughs> and how-to. Okay. How-to. My reviewers said that. Uh, that he, you know, that that was, you know, really quite unusual because usually um, books about dementia are, you know, books about how you handle stuff and where you go to figure stuff out and all these other little details that get to be very, yeah, okay, and you want to throw it out the window. And then you want to bring it back in and it becomes your most worn pages. And then others are stories of how it happened. And again, I'm a storyteller. You know, I, I, I think it it's easier to remember things if you incorporate them into the story yeah. and uh, when 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 i had a, a friend of mine in aberdeen who wrote an article about the book when i had a book signing at barnes and noble she said why did you not say his name nowhere in the book do you use his name and i said well there were two reasons for one thing he he was he was very shocked he really did not want he didn't like photographs he didn't like you know he just wasn't into that kind of thing and I said, and for the other, I think that when you're going through something so intensely emotional, it's often better if you don't name the characters because it's easier for you to step in to the place of the person you're trying to figure out. So I don't use my name and I don't use his anywhere in the book. I, I want people to approach it as this could happen to me. Hmm. And uh, I've had some really nice reviews on that book Okay. Now, now I understand why you didn't uh, want to label it as memoir alone. Yeah, that you wanted to leave it open for somebody to kind of see there. This I I might have to make space for this kind of thing in in my life rather than seeing it simply as this is something that happened to Victoria. Well, you know, and things like how you deal with when people shouldn't be driving anymore, and one of the blessings that I found was I found a Facebook um, group that was full of people who were caregivers. And and the, and the beauty of it, uh, more than any of the published places and groups and networks and things that I could talk to, the beauty of that thing was that it was worldwide. So it didn't matter if it was two o'clock in the morning, you could find somebody who had had the same problem that you were addressing at that moment. 
And you can have an answer within 30 minutes. And some of them were, well, dear, I know I've been through that, which is not extremely helpful. But, you know, uh, you know, some of them were very practical responses. And, and there was an interaction there that, that was that they helped you see outside, you know, the place where you were. I mean, figuring out that I could actually leave the house after he was gone, it took me a little bit of adjusting. But that was to me a real blessing was having somebody that I could interact with that understood where I was and what was happening and that, yeah, it's two o'clock in the morning, but I need to know how to get this man to go to bed, you know? (laughs) And I, you know, and getting around some of those problems, you know, at times I would feel frustrated because I would see people say, well, I don't want to take her keys away. And I'm going, and how are you going to feel if there's somebody dead in the street? Because you couldn't take the keys away. Yeah. I mean, there's some choices that you have to make. And I think that's part of what, again, comes out in Job. And, and the whole thing with Till We Have Faces is that sometimes they're not fun choices, but somebody's got to make them or someone else is going to be wounded and hurt. And how are you going to live with that? So I guess there is a theme that goes through almost everything that I write. And I think that that theme would be, you know, trying to be a decent human being. <laughs> I'm writing it down. (laughs) (laughs) Be a decent human being. It's harder than it sounds. It is. It is. Because sometimes we're afraid of giving something up and that we won't be able to get back. And I think that I realized very young that what I had was not mine to keep, that it could be taken without my desire or my permission. And that if I was going to move through life, I'd have to learn that lesson. Yeah. (laughs) You had mentioned in your book, and I forget the name of the person without going back and looking at it, but he was a professor in North Carolina who had lost his faith after having been published uh, with a lot of very, very deep Christian-type publications. And uh, there was was a Job-suffering-related reason why he lost his faith. And you were talking about something like that earlier with people's experience. I think the background of that person is probably worth going over a little bit, not to focus on names and individuals necessarily, but the issues, because that person was not alone in the way he looked at suffering and the way it affected his faith in God and his relationship with God. Well, his name is Bart Ehrman, and um, yes, he's a very popular author, and I adore his books, and I have written to him on occasion. We have exchanged emails, and it is to him that I owe the connection to uh, Dr. Greenstein, who is my consultant on the language of Job. Um, It wasn't a direct line, but it was obviously from him that I was able to make the connection. Uh, So I owe him a great deal, actually. Uh, The book that he wrote um, that I, I reference it has to do with whether or not the Bible has anything to say about suffering at all. And his crises of faith, and I would say that he's not an atheist, but he, he's certainly more, he certainly has become more of a, let's say, a deist or uh, an agnostic, which is not a bad thing. I mean, I, I, I sincerely believe that every Jew has a bit of agnosticism in their DNA. But his problem was what a number of people face, and that's it's a crisis of faith when you sit and you actually realize how blessed you are. 
And, and when you don't look at that as I'm a good person, so God's been good to me. But when you understand that by accident of birth, um, by accident of timing, by accident of who you are, where you grew up or who you knew or how you got there, you somehow are very blessed and you don't have to worry about going hungry. You don't have to worry about being on the street. Uh, you have a good job. You have great friends. You, you're married. You, what, you have all these good things in life. And then you realize, why me? I mean, there's two sides to the coin of why me. One side is, why am I suffering? And the other is, but what happens if all that goes away? And, and I think that in part, that was Job's companion's problem, is that we have to find a reason. Because if we can't find the reason and blame Job, the same thing could happen to us with no idea that it's coming or why. And I, I think that maybe that's part of the whole, you know, prosperity gospel, the whole, I'm blessed of God, so if the plane goes down, I'm going to be saved. Or, you know, if a fire goes through the neighborhood, my house will be preserved. Or I can go to church and not wear a mask and I'm going to be fine. It's that thing of, I don't dare admit that what happens to those people might happen to me. And and so that's when a lot of people that go, wait a minute, I don't want a God that, you know, does lottery like that, that lets millions of children die from disease and hunger while I'm sitting here having a nice turkey dinner. That is a challenge to faith. And that's the challenge that was written, uh, you know, in one of the books that I talked. Why do I get off when no one else does? And I think that is a crucial part of faith. I think that finding a place where you can admit that you're neither Lord of the universe or a worm beneath the ground, that you have a function, that you have a thing that you can do, that you can create, that you can be a part of discovering the universe and making that discovery reach people who need it. And he has, by the way, he has a, um, a charity that he funds uh, that is directed purely toward um, third world countries who uh, need to develop uh, nourishment and those kinds of things. So it isn't something that he said, well, the hell with y'all, and, and, you know, went back to writing books that are slightly more caustic. Than- he's living the letter of James. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, I mean, he's, you know, I can, I can feel the change in his writing, um, but uh, I also see him being very proactive about, you know, about looking at himself and saying, I need to go do. I think one of the reasons you know, I'm, I, I have not been an over a fan, a great fan of Michael Jackson. Although I'm, the more I learn about him, the more I, I wonder why. Actually, maybe because most of the music that he produced is not really in my space. But there's a couple of things that he's done that I, I sincerely appreciate, and one of them is "The Man in the Mirror." Mm-hmm which is a song that basically says, if you don't like what you see, then why don't you look in the mirror? You know, there's things that you can do. You know, it's, you know, you have a nice warm coat, you have a great house, you've got all the food you need. And yet you look at these people as if it's all their fault. Well, look in the mirror, find a path to doing something that makes a difference. If it's only for one person, just find a path that makes a difference. You talk a lot about making a difference as you tied the ribbons on your book at the end. Where you said, let's be effective. This is with be practical, effective in a practical way. That's what I got out of it. That's one of the things, one of the many things I got out of it at the end of it. If there was an answer that God made to Job, it was that. 
And I think, I, I, and I sincerely believe that is the answer. I think it's that there's a sense of freedom in knowing that we don't have to wait for an answer, that we don't have to assume that daddy's going to come and fix everything. That, you know, if we pray hard enough and if we do all the right things, that, that life is going to be good to us. Because sometimes it's not. Sometimes in the wild, it's a baby cougar who needs the food, not so much the baby bunny. And we, we, we have to learn that there are gives and takes and that within that nature, the more we understand of it, we can do really good things to help each other and, and to become better human beings. I think that's one of the things that uh, cost me my Pentecostal background more than anything else is that I, I could not sit by and watch the world fall apart and go, glory be to God, the end is coming. I, I, I was much more, you know, focused on the talents that said, you know, don't go bury them. There's things you must go do. You must invest in, in the world that's around you. You must go take care of the orphans and the widows. And you have to be good to people. You have to be a person they want to know. And in doing that, you will improve the world. And by the way, please take care of the house you live in because you only have one. Amen. The community. I mean, you know, we cannot continue to destroy the earth as if, you know, all things will be made new. Well, you know what? But we're not setting the clock. So I suggest we figure out how to take care of things. And that if God's going to go make everything new, he'll do it in his own time. And not when you decide the earth is going to crash. So I, I, I'm really frustrated with people who who really, well, you know, the earth will take care of herself. Well, yeah, by destroying everything on it and then rebuilding, you know, we'll just burn everything off the face of the earth and then the clouds will make things cooler and it'll all come back. But guess what? You won't be here. (laughs) (laughs) So get a grip on life and realize that we were not given dominion to destroy. We were given dominion to nurture and we need to do that. Oh, the world needs to hear that over and over again. It just does. Well, I hope, I hope that my Joe, my hero, (laughs) my fellow who stands toe-to-toe with God and says, tell me, well, tell people that. I will say that when Ginger said, we're going to do a podcast with the author of a book about Job, and I'm thinking, oh, that's one of the most unpleasant books in the entire Bible. (laughs) Okay. forward that was written by David. There you go. Um, basically says is that his mother absolutely hated that book. She she I remember you said that. Yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> would have nothing to do with it. And I but you know what? I so so I could feel him when I read that book. And when I ran across verses like the earth hangs on nothing. And I said, you know, this thing was written before BC and we were still trying to crucify poor old Galileo. I cannot believe that this man, whoever this person was who wrote this book, did not know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the earth hung on nothing. How did he know? And from there, I just, I couldn't, you know, I had to, I had to look, I had to see. I have to say, after I got through the book, I realized it was very refreshing. So I have changed my view of the book of Job after reading your book. (laughs) Job. I had no view on the book of Job before reading this book. So I'm glad that this was my, my introduction to, to Job because 
I may not have seen it in this, I don't want to say a positive light, but in a different uh, depths light, if I hadn't been introduced to it in this manner. So thank you. Well, and it was my hope that I could write something that people that were not Christian or who were not faith affiliated in some way would still find value and uh, something that they could take away from it. I definitely want to see this JB play now. He's, um, I don't know who they're producing, but it's, you can, it's an easy book to get on Amazon. It's not very expensive. It's a wonderful play. Um, I think it was something that was mentioned in one of Erdman's books. And I thought, I really need to read that. And I, I was really taken with with the vision that he had. I, you know, it was placed in the 50s during a time when our country was very prosperous. Yeah. And some of the questions that he pointedly makes, and, and it's not just the questions. It's like when his wife says, I, I, I had to leave because if you were going to accept any responsibility for what has happened to our children, I couldn't love you anymore. You might as well have murdered them. Yeah. And, 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 and also... When you watch the two carnies who are playing the, the, the pieces of God and, and Satan, how at times in their humanity, they can't quite do their part. Yeah. They have to put the mask on. They have to be something other than an empathetic human being. Why must he suffer? If you already know he is loyal, why, why must he suffer? And the answer is because he needs to know. When I saw those lines in there, that was, you discussed the play earlier, but when you talked about that particular, like the the exchange between, I guess, are they kind of serving as like a narrative frame or, or something? When there was that line about the wife and her, I'm trying to remember her lines. Um, well, basically this, uh, when you're discussing that in your book, that's what made me think. Okay, I've got to, I've got to look up this play and maybe even like try to see it performed. Well, one of the things that I I wanted to bring out, I think, in Job too, is that Job's wife gets a bad rap. <laughs> I mean, she really does, and and you know, you can understand some of the frustration, but you know, she's a mother, and her children are gone, and 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 some explicable thing has happened, and all their wealth is gone, and. And and here he is sitting around, you know, saying, "Oh, well, it was me." And she's going, "But but we have to, what? What are we supposed to do here? You know, if if, if your God does this, all we can do with them." And I think that some of the literature over the centuries has to do with her position it takes her out of that. Well, she was a tool of Satan thing that so many philosophers and and theologians thought for so many centuries and said, "You know, look, this is part of the problem." Yeah. This is part of the suffering is is a mother who has lost so much. And, you know, and still she says, you insist on your integrity. Right. You know, she still honors Job. She's no Jezebel. No, no, she's not. She is a woman on an ash heap. And I think I wanted to bring that out. Victoria, thank you for speaking with us. Is there anything that we haven't addressed that you would like to speak on? Read book. <laughs> I'll second that. <laughs> really, I, 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 I really want to share my journey. I really want to share the things that I found. I really want to people to uh, to be free to see the world as something that we can, with wonder and ingenuity, that we can change. That that is the message. 
Well, Victoria Adams, thank you so much for being with us on creativecoast.org. Thank you.